Good morning. Do keep your Bibles open. It's page 504, Esther 5 and 6. And let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for the extraordinary way that we have these words in our hands from thousands of years ago, and yet they speak to us today. And that extraordinary way that you speak to all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. We pray that you would speak to us. Lord, you know us. You know our hearts. You know whether we are sad or happy. You know whether we are sceptical. You know where we stand before you. So we pray that you would speak to us in your son's name. Amen. One of the things we've seen at Esther over the past few weeks is is that at the very heart of it sit two kingdoms, two kings contrasted. We've seen in the forefront the kingdom of Persia with King Xerxes, solid, tangible, vast, glorious, impressive, oppressive. And then behind the scenes, the kingdom of God, quietly at work, unassuming in the normalness of life through messy people, through messy situations. And these kingdoms have come crashing into each other with with Esther the Jew being raised up to the position of queen, queen of Persia. And as the kids saw, we left it last time on something of a cliffhanger. Remember Haman, Xerxes' right-hand man, plays the king like a puppet. And so this extraordinary, horrible edict is sent out to all the kingdom, whereby all the Jews are to be annihilated. Mordecai stands up and says to Esther, you've got to come clean about who you are. You've got to mediate before the king for for the good of your people and for you. And it was a make-or-break moment last week. Maybe she had been raised up for such a time as this, Would she stand up for her people? Would she intervene, despite it meaning her coming clean about her identity? Would she be open? What's she going to do? And so she and her entourage and all the people in Susa have a three-day fast. And Esther stands before the king. We're going to do things slightly different this week, and we're going to zoom in on the three main human characters within these two chapters. And we'll see a different aspect coming from each of them. So the first thing we'll see is Esther's wisdom in playing the long game. We'll see Haman's pride leading to his downfall, and we'll see Mordecai's fortunes about to turn. There's this swap over, there's this change. So firstly... Esther's wisdom in playing the long game. Last week we said Esther had changed. She had transitioned from being one who who took orders, who did as she was told, who was generally compliant, to making a plan, to telling Mordecai what to do. No longer is she a beauty queen, now she starts acting like a, a real queen. And so three days later, She goes before the king wearing her royal robes and there is Xerxes. Verse 2. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. He welcomes her. Just because 
he's her husband, it doesn't simply mean she can turn up whenever she wants. She would need to wait for him to beckon her. And the very fact that she's approached him without being summoned, it means he knows something is up, something important is on her mind. She's taken a huge risk. There's something huge going on. And Xerxes, rather typically for him, rashly and hastily, verse 3, even before he's heard whatever she wants, he says, even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. But it's a thorny problem. Xerxes can't just at this point give her what she wants. It would mean going back on his previous edicts. It would mean him losing face. Haman issued the decree, but it was in the king's name, with his signet ring. And so it's going to take a whole load of wisdom and skill from Esther to try and sort things out to bring a resolution. It's not going to be immediate. Which means she's prepared to wait. She's fishing. Fishing takes patience. Apparently the American president in the early 30s, Herbert Hoover, who was a fisherman, said, be patient and calm, for no one can catch a fish in anger. And so Esther, slowly, gently, calmly, is going to reel Xerxes in. She mustn't be hasty or rash. What's a plan? Verse 4, for starters, stage 1 is an initial banquet for Xerxes and Haman. And the wine is flowing freely. And again, the king's promises are flowing freely. Again, up to half my kingdom, it's yours. But verse 7, Esther says, well, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favour and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. She delays. The suspense rises. The second banquet is where Esther will tell the king what it is she wants, why she came to him unapproached, uninvited, wearing royal robes. And yet, you see, if the king, who twice now has offered Esther whatever she wants up to half the kingdom, were to back out at stage three, then that would be a major back down. That would mean a major, great deal of face lost. She's carefully and she's wisely played him. She's reeled him in. She's going to catch her fish. It's interesting if you compare this with how the book started. Do you remember chapter 1? It was another banquet. Wine was flowing. Xerxes was in charge. But here it's kind of switched over, isn't it? Despite the edict about each man ruling his own household, Xerxes might not spot it, might not be aware of the net. But he is being manoeuvred by Esther. She's caught her fish. Esther, unlike her foolish husband and his rash promises, is wisely playing the long game. She's prepared to wait. It strikes me that's a real tonic for our culture. A culture like ours, as we deal with the empire around us, sometimes a direct approach is needed. Again, parallel the account with Daniel. His friends boldly interact with different various Babylonian kings over them. 
And they're seen to be right. But it strikes me here, direct confrontation and hostility isn't always the best way to live in the world. Sometimes a more indirect, unhurried, meek, gentle approach will yield greater results in the long term. Sometimes it's good to play the long game as we interact with the world. That's a great reminder and an antidote in our fast-moving culture. If you were here back in the summer, we saw something of what that looks like as we were thinking through Proverbs. Week by week, the need for us to slow down. We said we lived in a culture where we were bombarded by information and tweets and one-minute news reports on Channel 5 and an instant response. And people know lots of stuff, but we're not very wise. So it's striking here for Esther that despite the massive urgency, she's prepared to wait. She's prepared to take the long game. She knows her husband. She throws out the net. And there's the catch. She gets her prize. Striking too that Esther's wisdom as she deals with her husband is not at the expense of God's sovereignty. She's not, she's not gone off script here. She's not done what she wants to do. Sometimes people say, well, you're just thinking in a worldly way there. That's just worldly wisdom as you interact with those people. But it's not quite as simple as that, is it? One of the themes we've seen week by week as Woody explained to the kids, that despite the darkness and the pain of exile, despite the consequences of sin in the world, despite God not being mentioned, he is at work. He is quietly in control. doesn't mean that we're passive puppets. doesn't mean that we're simply being played with. But it does mean he is working quietly in and through his people, through their very real decisions. Very real interactions. One writer said this. They said, notice that God's plan in this case was worked out without thunder and lightning or a parting of the sea in order to save his people. No one was delivered from a fiery furnace or miraculously preserved in a den of lions. God's work here is every bit as subtle as Esther's. It proceeds by unobtrusively nudging each of the characters in the story to exactly behave in accord with their own wishes and temperaments, while at the same time they do exactly what he decreed. Esther plays the long game. Esther is prepared to be slow and careful and wise. And that is in contrast with Haman. Do you remember Haman? He was an Agagite. He was from one of the people who were Israel's arch enemies. And it it seems he was also a man with an ego the size of England. He heads home after Esther's party in high spirits, but not just from the the drinking. He's, He's intoxicated by his arrogance and his pride. And so verse 10, calling his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman, boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he'd elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited, and he goes on. You can imagine his wife, can't you, as, as he gets home, after years of practice, able to deal with this fragile ego. Yes, dear, I know how great you are. Yes, I know all about your vast wealth. I know all about your sons. 
from first-hand experience. I know how Xerxes has honoured you, and it's great how Queen Esther wants you in on the act as well. You are indeed the man. It's striking, again, just how Haman parallels Xerxes from chapter 1. Remember Xerxes in chapter 1 at the banquet, peacock-like, displaying all his splendour, all his majesty, all his glory. And here is Haman listing all the stuff he has. Perhaps that's why he gets on so well in the kingdom. But Haman has a typical fragile ego. You see, the very fact he's called his friends together, verse 10, is because after the party he saw Mordecai. And Mordecai still will not bow to him. Verse 9, he observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence. He was filled with rage against Mordecai. And then verse 13, he's listed his boasts, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. It's an extraordinary statement in verse 13, but in another sense it's really not. The problem with pride is it makes us miserable. We never focus on the good things that we have, the blessings from God. We're never thankful. It's it's always about what we don't have, or that they have more than us. Or it's our relentless pursuit of the imaginary prize that we think will satisfy us, but it never does. I wonder if we get a bit of help here as to why Haman reacted with such vehement hatred to Mordecai in chapter 3 as well. Remember, Mordecai initially refuses to bow to him, and it felt a bit over the top for him to want to annihilate the entire Jewish population in Persia just because one man would not bow. But here we see something of what he lives for, what he's like inside, how he, he reacts so strongly when he's threatened, when he's challenged. Here is a fickle, proud man who longs for significance, and power, and respect. And when he gets what he wants and his ego is fed and stroked, he is happy. But when he's disrespected, when he doesn't get what he wants, when Mordecai does not bow, then he overreacts and he flies off the handle and he cannot cope. Do you ever do that? Do you ever find yourself surprised by the strength of your reaction to a situation? Perhaps anger, perhaps hatred, perhaps you lash out, maybe not in wanting to destroy an entire people group. But you look back and you think, where did that reaction come from? I didn't realise I felt like that. I think it's sometimes helpful to ask those questions of our hearts. When, When we are challenged in some way, then we kind of find what we functionally live for, what really matters to us. It's respect or recognition or friendship or power or money or success or fame or whatever it might be. What's going on with that strong reaction? What does that tell me about my heart? What what gods am I serving there? Trouble is, Our man doesn't ask those questions. He doesn't care what's driving him. He lacks contentment because of the one thing he does not have and the one thing that he wants is Mordecai on a pole. He listens to his wife, verse 14. Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up. 
reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Why 50 cubits? That's, as it says at the bottom, about 23 meters. Why? So that everybody will be able to see the type of person who does not bow to Haman, who does not respect him. You won't bow to me as boss, and I will show you who is boss. I will make you pay, and I will make your people pay. And nobody will doubt who is in charge. You get another glimpse of him as well in chapter 6. Another glimpse of the issue. The next day, do you remember, so Xerxes can't sleep. He reads, he realises he's not recognised Mordecai. He wants to honour him. And then comes the hilarious conversation, 6 verse 6. Haman says, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? And, um, and Haman uh, lists what ought to be done. For the man the king delights to honour, let him bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. And let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets. Do you see what he wants? He wants to be king. He's got enough wealth and enough money. He wants to be treated as if he is king. He wants people to see him and admire him and, and treat him just like they treat Xerxes. That's the idol, I take it. That's his God. He wants to be king. Believe it or not, back in the 90s, I had a basketball phase. If any of you know basketball, think John Stockton, but nothing like as good. Um, I was reading an article last week about the basketball legend Michael Jordan. He's just turned 50. There have been various articles written about him and surprisingly a fair bit of coverage in the, in the US. But the article was extraordinary as it looked at Jordan and how he has been unable to live in his retirement, how he's struggled to cope. It's been very sad. Let me read to you a little bit from the article. It says this, Most people live anonymous lives, and when they grow old and die, any record of their existence is blown away. They're forgotten, some more slowly than others, but eventually it happens to virtually everyone. Yet for the few people in each generation who reach the very pinnacle of fame and achievement, a mirage flickers, immortality. And they come to believe in it. Even after Jordan is gone, he knows people will remember him. Here lies the greatest basketball player of all time. That's his epitaph. There's a fable about returning Roman generals who rode in victory parades through the streets of the capital. And a slave stood behind them, whispering in their ears, All glory is fleeting. Nobody does that for professional athletes. And you see, there is Haman, almost at the top of the tree, wanting to be treated as if he is king, wanting to be paraded, wanting the power and the glory, the immortality. His value is in his status and how others view him. But as they say, pride comes before a fall. Haman is wrapped up in his own self-importance. And that will be his downfall. Friends, I want to say, if pride is a particular issue for you, 
and take care. Root it out. Humble yourself before the Lord. Ask him to humble you. Because Proverbs 3.34, the Lord mocks proud mockers, but shows favour to the humble and oppressed. And so in these chapters, Haman is mocked and Mordecai is lifted up. Third point, third character. Mordecai's fortune's about to turn. You see, God is at the heart of this plan. And so from the very depths, Mordecai will be lifted up. It's very clear the Lord is in this. We're not told why Xerxes couldn't sleep, but in hindsight we see why. It's because he had unfinished business with his book of Chronicles. You'll remember if you were a couple of weeks ago, Mordecai overhears the plot to assassinate Xerxes. He goes and tells Esther. Esther tells the king. Mordecai's name is written down, but he's not rewarded. And if we can't sleep, we count sheep. For Xerxes, it was to read his own chronicles, his own life achievements. I'm not sure if that's meant to be funny or not. But there he finds he's recorded Mordecai's name, but he's forgotten to honour him. So first thing next morning, he wants to put it right, and the irony begins to drip, verse 4. The king said, who's in court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he'd set up for him. The attendants answered, well, Haman's standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? It just so happens that the person who wants to destroy Mordecai is the person who enters the king's court. And it just so happens this person has an enormous ego. And so by answering the king's question, he assumed it's about himself, but he ends up making his own noose and a crown for Mordecai. Haman is there planning Mordecai's downfall. Xerxes is planning Mordecai's exhortation, and neither know the other's intentions. And so verse 10. It's going to be painful for Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Don't neglect anything you've recommended. Proverbs 3.34, the Lord mocks proud mockers, but shows favour to the humble and the oppressed. Mordecai is paraded through the streets. Haman is before him, calling everyone to bestow attention and glory and honour upon his arch enemy. And it's becoming clear that the Lord is at work. Even Haman's allies see that. God's sovereign hand in his works of providence. Verse 13, his advisers and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. The first domino has been flicked. It's inevitable. While they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So take comfort. Take comfort because it's the way that God loves to work in his people. 
As the Apostle Peter writing to a group of Christians who were struggling with persecution and hardships, who were looking down the barrel of the gun, who said, so humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honour. Sometimes that's unexpected, as in the case of Mordecai, a case of reversals. The Lord lifting up the weak and the helpless from the depths. And we'll see bringing down the arrogant. But the Bible is clear that sometimes aspects of that lifting up will have to wait to eternity. But that's not second best. Don't, don't roll your eyes at that. In Christ, eternity is a solid, certain reality. In Christ, honours bestowed in eternity are unfading and forever. So maybe you know something of the daily cost of following Jesus. Something of the daily death to self. Perhaps you feel that pinch in the workplace or amongst friends or in relationships or whatever it might be. Well, take heart and press on and keep going. Because in his time, God will raise you up. He will one day parade you in glory, as he did for Mordecai. Jesus said in Mark 10, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And as we live like that, as we're prepared to die a thousand daily deaths to self, to humble ourselves, well, so we trace the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus, the one who, rather than longing for power like Haman, willingly chose to be humbled and broken, and in so doing was lifted up in glory for us, like Mordecai. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.